we are in the story of Exodus. And when we look at Exodus, what we see is a great story, but not only a great story, we see a great God. A God who is gracious, a God who is merciful. And has been merciful to the Israelites, and he delivered them out of a bondage. I mean, they were in bondage to this nation called Egypt. They were slaves there, treated very badly. God did great signs and wonders, and did the plagues. He uh, delivered the people out. And one of the objects that he had in mind all along was that the people would worship him in a big way, in a way that they would know his presence. And so that's what he is setting up all this time of 40 days or so while he's up on the mountain along with Moses. Moses is getting instructions from the God of the universe on how he wants to be in the presence of Israel so they, they can in some way visibly realize that he's there. Even though they can't see him, the tabernacle and all the things that go with it represent uh, the opportunity to worship. So he's right there. He's going to be there. Now that's the instructions. This hasn't happened yet. They, they don't have the tabernacle. It's going to be built. But right at the end of the instructions, God tells Moses something very bad has happened. A tragic story. After all of this that has gone on, that God has done for his people, they are doing rebellion, sin, apostasy, and idolatry, which is the things that God hates. And he had given them the Ten Commandments. And you remember, he did that in a way that they heard him. You remember the thunder and the lightning and the, uh, the, the trumpet blast? And then God giving those Ten Commandments? Now what he's been doing is elaborating on those Ten Commandments to, to Moses. But they break the very first two commandments within a, a few short weeks. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no idols. So what do they do? After waiting and waiting, they say, okay, that's it. We have to do something here because Moses is not going to come down, evidently. Moses is the one that's been leading them. The first act of worship that they do is what? Idolatry. God is setting up a worship for them. They just need to be patient. They set up their own kind of worship called idolatry. This is just staggering. I think this is mind-blowing with what they do here. This is going to plague Israel throughout the rest of their history because they're going to take in other gods from other nations. Even when they get in the promised land, that's what they're going to do. And that's one of the warnings that the prophets are going to give to them. As they are settled in their own land with a king and with prophets, they're warned about it and they continue to do this idolatry. So God is very angry of what Israel has done. Matter of fact, in our passage that we dealt with last week, God said he was going to wipe them out. And then we see that Moses then came in, interceded for the people, interceded for them like the great intercessor, Jesus Christ, and he fled with God that he wouldn't destroy them. He played quite a role as a mediator. And that's what we saw last week. And then we saw the very last verse 
uh, verse 14 in that section. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. And, and we talked about that, and we don't have enough time this week to go into that very much. But uh, God changed his mind, although he is a God who does not change. <laughs> and um, if, if you want to hear more about that, you'll just have to, uh, I don't know, uh, get my notes from last week. Get it on the website. Because <laughs> I took the whole message. But we see that really what God does, though, he, he listens to people. Even though he has his plan set and it's going to come through that way at the same time, as we are wanting to line up with God's will, then he also listens to our prayers and he answers those prayers when we pray the right way. And of course his will was that he would continue on to do through this nation. But at the same time, he had said that he would destroy them and his great will is that Moses would be an intercessor. And he did. He played with God. What a mediator we have today in Jesus Christ, don't we? Because we are in the same position that uh, Israel was whenever they had sinned. And we were idolatrous people before we came to Christ. We didn't have little plastic or wooden idols, metal. Uh, Maybe we did, but or maybe we had other things that replaced God. And he delivers us from that. We were rebellious sinners, just like they were. People are always in the need of a mediator. Thank the Lord for Moses. But more than that, thank the Lord for Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to pick up the story at verse 15. We're in chapter 32 of Exodus, starting at verse 15 and 15 through 20. We're going to look at this section where Moses is going to catch Israel in the act of their sin. Moses turned and went down from the mountain. And the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides. On the one side and on the other, they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. So it was, as soon as he came near the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Then he took the calf, which they had made, burned it in the fire, ground it to powder, and he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink. We'll stop there. Moses had been told by the Lord up on the mountain that the nation was sinning. Moses interceded for them at that time. He hadn't seen the sin yet, but he interceded for them. Now, Moses takes a trip down the mountain. And he sees for himself what terrible sin they are doing. And if you were to look back in chapter 32, you don't have to go back very far at all. Uh, you'll, you'll know that they built that golden calf or the, the golden bull. And it sounds like an energy drink, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe those are idols today. I don't know. But anyway, in Exodus 32, 5, Now, when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Okay, they built this idol. Then Aaron, Moses' brother, makes this, helps them make it, responsible for it as they are. 
He says, tomorrow is a feast day. We're going to celebrate the true God. Now, verse 6, Then they rose early on the next day, look at this, offered burnt offerings, brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink, there's your feast, all in the name of Yahweh the Lord, and rose up to play. And that is despicable. Uh, drunken, immoral activities are going on here. Idolatrous fertility cults did this kind of thing. And uh, what, we, what we see here are orgies that are going on. They're worshiping in the name of the true God, this bull. And here we have it. And this is what Moses is seeing when it comes down the mountain. He heard it from God they were sending, and now he sees it himself. Now, in verse 15, it says, And Moses turned and went down from the mountain. And he had the two tablets, testimony. This is what God has been writing. Okay, this is amazing. God elaborated on what those Ten Commandments are. Those are what, what they're about here. The writing was on the front. The writing is on the back. And God not only spoke the word, but he wrote it with his own finger. That's an incredible thing. Can you imagine carrying something down that God himself had written? Well, as Moses nears the bottom, he runs into somebody. Joshua. Joshua's a good man of the Lord. Joshua doesn't really know what's going on. Now, Joshua didn't go all the way up to the top of the mountain. But he's not there down at the bottom with the people. He's been waiting patiently for some 40 days. If you look back in chapter 24, 13... You see, as they made their way up to the mountain, and Moses actually had taken the elders, and he took up Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and uh, the, uh, the 70, and also Joshua, and um, Moses tells them to come up a little bit further. They'll eventually go on down. Verse 13, so Moses arose with his assistant, Joshua. And you know what that word means, don't you? That's the same name, basically, as Jesus. It's Yahashua. God saves. Savior. He's salvation. That's what Jesus' name is. His name was actually Yeshua and Yahashua, related to this, this Joshua name. Um, Moses um, then runs into him. Uh, or this, this is the one that he runs into. Moses went up to the mountain of God, it says there. So as he comes down, uh, after a month later, there is Joshua waiting. That's, that's amazing. The other people didn't wait, did they? Couldn't wait any longer. He was faithful. And the thing is, Joshua is up the mountain enough that he's not aware of what really is going on. Did you know that? Joshua doesn't know what's happening. And he says, hey, it sounds like there's a war going down there in the camp. Moses coming down the mountain, he says, listen to that, listen to that. It's like a war. People are shouting and, and yelling, he thinks. And, but Moses knows. Why does he know? God already told me what was kind of going on. And Moses knows it's not war. Moses knows they're having a party. They're having the party of the decade. <laughs> I mean, they're having an incredible time without the true God. So Moses knows. Joshua's not given any warning. And then Moses tells him, this is not war, Josh, but uh, they're singing. Singing is not a bad thing. But this singing is from uh, a different heart here. What kind of singing could this be? That it would be mistaken for war. Well, 
might be an allusion to the singing that they had when they had victory at the Red Sea. Do you remember they, they won there? They, they crossed the Red Sea. God delivered them. And what did they do? They wrote, Moses wrote a song. And Miriam even wrote a song. And the whole congregation was singing that. So it might be something like that. Now, how many people are out there? Two million people singing? That had to sound like war. I mean, that would be uh, just amazing. Have you ever gone to some kind of a meeting where people just sing a cappella and you've got 50,000 in the crowd? That's, a, that's an amazing sound. They're singing hymns to God. Wow. Well, this must have been something. But you know, they have a parody here. Burn offerings. Uh, they have an altar. They have sacrifices. They have singing. Sounds like worship to me. They have a festival going on. Well, that's what it was. It was a worship. But who are they really worshiping? Well, they're saying, Yahweh, God. Moses is irate. He is angry. He already knows about it. Now he sees it. Have you ever heard about when somebody is doing sin and then you see them doing sin, whatever that may be? You were mad before. Now you're really mad. So, there they are. They're at the base of the mountain. Moses and Joshua now. Moses sees what God saw. Moses sees what God sees. He sees how God sees sin. And the closer we get to our great God, the closer we are to God, the more that we see our own sin. Have you ever noticed that? Yeah, we see other sins. Don't pay attention to other sins. You've got enough problems with your own self. Do you hear what I'm saying? But in this case, Moses is an intercessor for the people. He had already intercessed for them, and his anger is burning like God's anger. Look what it says here. Verse 19, So it was, as soon as he came near the camp, that he saw the calf <laughs> and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot. Does that sound familiar? Moses' anger became hot. Go back. To verse 11, same chapter, or even verse 10. Verse 10. God tells Moses about what's going on. He says, they're stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. Uh, that may be a biblical language. You can say, I wonder what that means. Well, I think it means it says, when you have an anger that's burning hot, and it mentions wrath, it means God is going to judge this. He says, I will consume them. God is a judging God. Boy, that's not very fair. He just made a mistake. It is very, God could have destroyed them and been perfectly just. This is why people don't like an Old Testament God. Because He judges. That means we have two gods. God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament. We only have one. He's the same today, yesterday, and forever. He's the same judging God. But we also see an intercessor for them. They deserved it because of their great sin. We'll get into that in a moment. That's what this title is today. The great sin is exposed. So I'm going to consume them. Moses intercedes. And Lord, why does your wrath burn against your people? And now Moses has a burning anger just like God. Listen, we should be that way when we see sin. When you see sin in your lives... When you look at yourself and you see something that has offended the Holy God, you should be angry at what you just did. So his anger is burned, and it's an ugly, ugly reality when we really see sin for what it is. 
when we see a holy God and we see ourselves for who we are, we should be angry at that sin. Now, he represented the people before God when he interceded, right? You know what he's doing now? He's representing God to the people in his anger that he has when he comes down there. He realizes exactly what had taken place here. He knows it. Now, we get into something here that um, sounds interesting. It says he he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. You remember all the little um, Bible stories we've gotten as kids and watched the little movies and everything? You almost think, wow, he just got out of control here. What, What is Moses doing? He shouldn't do that. He shouldn't break God's commandments that were just given there. What's happening? Well, the smashing of the tablets with that crash that came down tells the Israelites this party is over. All of them are down there, or at least many of them are, just partying away. And all of a sudden, they see Moses and they see these commandments, these tablets, being thrown down, broken, scattered out. Their own creation of worship has failed. The breaking of the tablets is more than just a graphic picture, a graphic description here of hot anger. There's a symbolism that's going on. It's not just showing that Moses is out of control, but it's showing the smashing of the law is symbolically undone. What have the people just done? They've broken the law. have a good time we're worshiping God were they really by Moses doing this the Israelites are getting the picture that if they're not prepared to obey the law that was given they don't deserve to have it and so there goes the tablets they don't deserve it the, the tablets being the law are a sign of the covenant The covenant relationship between God and His people. There is something to be amazed about. God made a covenant with a people that didn't deserve to be delivered in the first place. And He does it out of His own mercy and grace and love. They were already despicable. They were slaves. Does this sound familiar? That's where we were at. We were all depraved, and yet he came in in his own great grace and delivers us out of that. So the tablets are a covenant relationship. They're representing that, and all of a sudden they see them being broken. Would this be a visible sign to all the people? They're going to see this. This is going to start clicking in their minds. Oh my, what's going on? It, It was like a ceremonial action when Moses did this. Anyone in the culture at that time would have known what he did the way that he did it when he threw them down. Israel knew immediately they broke the covenant. When they broke the law about idolatry. God would have been right in wiping them all out. He had every right, didn't he? He didn't do it. They violated the very relationship that they had. That's what it's about. When two people get married, they have a covenant relationship. 
they are together. They want to honor each other. And so there is that covenant that is made between the two. And neither one of them wants to break it because they love the other one so much. That covenant is made there. A marriage covenant. That's what marriage is. It's a covenant. Israel violated the relationship. This action must have shocked all of Israel to how serious this was. I mean, in a crowd of two million, it's hard to see that, but you're coming down the mountain, all of a sudden you see that, you see that crash. Something's happening here. This sin was extreme. This, the gravity of this, the weight of this sin is incredible. Moses' action of breaking this stresses it like nothing else could have as he throws them down to the ground. Now, he does something that's really rather odd. And you say, what is going on here, though, Moses? I know you're really mad. He takes that idol. He burns it in the fire, grinds it to powder, and he scatters it on the water and makes the children of Israel drink it. <laughs> what is going on here? I don't know if we can exactly tell you everything, but not only was the covenant violated, but now Moses is going to violate the idol. Do you understand what's happening there? He has to violate that idol because if you look back in Exodus 23, verse 24, You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works. Look. Look what he says right here. This is what God is telling Moses here. But you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. When you have any kind of idol there, break them up. Destroy them. Did you like that? Destroy those idols. So, that's what Moses is doing here with that. He utterly smashes it. Annihilates it. Down to powder. That's what Moses is doing. He's pulverizing it out of existence. Matter of fact, as he uh, puts it in the powder and then mixes it in the water, what happens next seems to be even more odd. Because you've got to ask, well, why would Moses force them to drink this concoction that he has? It's come out of this pretty good-sized idol, and it was gold, Right? Now, mixed into the water, they are forced to ingest their homemade God. They are ingesting Him into their system, and whatever would pass through their urinary tracts would never be used again for the making of an idol. That's what one writer says. That was rather ingenious. Whatever. Go back to Numbers. Um, oh. Yeah, it will be turning to numbers. But um, we get to this, this adultery test. Matter of fact, that's based on uh, drinking this water. Um, numbers chapter 5. It starts at 1. And pretty well takes much of the chapter. I don't know if we're going to read that whole part. But just to show you... It's 5.11. Yeah. This is about unfaithful wives. 
Okay. Unfaithful spouses. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, If any man's wife goes astray and behaves unfaithfully toward him, and a man lies with her carnally and it is hidden from her eyes of her husband and is concealed that she has defiled herself and there was no witness against her nor was she caught. If the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife who has defiled herself or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife although she has not defiled herself then the man should bring his wife to the priest. He should bring the offering required for her one-tenth of an eva of barley meal. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it because it's a grain offering of jealousy, an offering for remembering, for bringing iniquity remembrance. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. The priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. Then the priest shall stand the woman uh, before the Lord, uncover the woman's head, put the offering for remembering in her hands, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And the priest shall have in his hand the bitter water that brings a curse. And the priest shall put her under oath and say to the woman, If no man is lame with you, and if you have gone astray to uncleanness while under your husband's authority, be free from this bitter water that brings a curse. But if you've gone astray while under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself and some man other than your husband is lame with you, then the priest shall put the woman under the oath of the curse, and he shall say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people when the Lord makes your thigh rot and your belly swell. And may this water that causes the curse go into your stomach and make your belly swell and your thigh rot. And the woman shall say, I'm in the What's happening there is if a woman is uh, in adultery or the husband thinks she's in adultery, she may or may not be, take her to the priest, let's check it out. You take some water, you take some dust out of the tabernacle, and you put it into the water and you make her drink it. And somehow, some way, and, and I don't know how, maybe through God's revelation to the priest, some way, they would know that there would be a curse on the lady or not a curse. If she was guilty, the curse would come. And if not, then she was okay. If the husband had that kind of doubts about her. But she was, so there was an adultery test. I said, Dennis, how do we get on that? But this doesn't seem like to go with the Moses story. Well, you remember the gold is put into the water, which is representing that idol that they made. They drink it. There's, there it is. And what is Moses saying here? They've been disloyal. They are like a woman who has committed adultery. Or, let's say, a man. What are we getting into? Israel has a covenant to God. What is Israel pictured as, in the Old Testament quite frequently? As the wife of God. Covenant relationship. She was unfaithful. Was God unfaithful? No. But she was unfaithful. And so, the test, that might be what we could refer that to. Uh, we turn there. I think there is significance here of the act that they did. I think we can we can say that as uh, this mixture was, was happening here. Israel is being treated as an adulteress. Wow. And the law later is going to be given in numbers. That's what we read. It hasn't they haven't even known this yet. But that's when that comes about. I'm sure that'll remind them. Anyway, what are we dealing with? Disloyalty. Disloyalty to God. Disloyalty to the Lord. God is angry. Why is He angry? Is He a God that wants to take away our fun? Is God a cosmic killjoy? No. He wants us to enjoy. He wants us to 
to have such a great relationship with Him that we enjoy everything that's dealing with Him and that He would want us to have. It's not so much as a loss, and you can do this and you can't do that. It does expose our sin. That's what it does. That's its job. But also, it's saying, I care about you. I want the best for you. If you, if you um, commit a wrong act of worship, it's bad for you. If you steal, it's bad for you. If you, if you lie, it's bad for you. You're going to have guilt there. If you commit adultery, Coveting and all that, that's, that's disloyalty to God. If we be loyal, then we have a great, joyful relationship, and it's not something of, well, I have to do this and I can't do that. It's saying, I can't wait to see what God has for me today. You know? But God right here is angry because his covenant was violated. In the second commandment, God says there are to be no idols. Look back in Exodus chapter 20. And if we move to verse 5. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. Why? For I, the Lord, the covenant God, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. A jealous God? I thought jealousy was, was a bad thing. Well, there's a good attribute of God. Every attribute of His is good. Jealous is a good thing in that He doesn't want His people to go after other gods. Why? Because they're false. There is no reality to them whatsoever. It is not true. It's bad for you. He says, don't bow down to them. Don't serve them because I'm a jealous God. But he says in verse 6, he also shows mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Those who love me keep my commandments. Why do they keep them? Why do they keep that covenant? Because they love God. What are the two commandments? Love God. With all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Love your neighbor. You have those two? You are loving God. And that's, that's what the commandments are. That's how they're wrapped up. Love like God loves. Lord God is putting on a display of His, not His wrath so much. It's shown here too. It'll be here. But do you see God's great love here? That's the kind of love we have to put on display. When people have been disloyal to us, people have mistreated us, we think. Well, he says, love our enemies. Did we do that? Okay, they had been spiritually unfaithful. They had their own desires. James, the book of James, talks about our own desires rather than God's desires. What happens when we go after our desires rather than God's desires? Well, we're basically uh, disobeying Him. We're not representing God. And really, we're showing that we have friendship with the world. James 4 says... Uh, verse 1, where do whites, uh, wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? Look at this. You lust and do not have. That's desire. You desire, it can be anything. 
you desire after things that are not of God and do not have. You murder and covet and you cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss. You're not asking for God's will. That you may spend it on your pleasures. What's the point? What's the problem? We want our pleasures rather than the pleasures of God. Do you desire God? When you desire God, then you want His pleasures. You want to see the great pleasures of God. You want to get in on that. What does verse 4 say? Here's what we get into our, our text. That what we want to hit on. Adulterers and adulteresses. James says this. Wow. Do you not know that friendship with the world is what? Enmity with God. When you are friends with the things of the world, you do the things that they do. And this is really what they were doing out there in the desert, right? They were worshiping like all the other pagan nations were, like Egypt worshipped God. You are at enmity with God. You are an enemy of Him. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, here's, here's the next verse. Here's the key. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? Now, there is there's a God that is a jealous God. And so there's this true jealousy. The Spirit yearns jealously. Uh, friendship with the world is a misplaced loyalty. You've taken your loyalty from God to somewhere else. Desires that are not godly take us away from God. you know what this language is of? Marriage. Whenever he talks about them being disloyal, they violated the covenant, we see what this is going on, and we look at what James is saying here. It's, it's about relationship. That's what God wants with his people. He doesn't want to destroy our fun and all the things that we have. If we have desires that are linking up with what God's will is, fantastic, go for it. Man, this is what God equipped you with. You're wired up for that and go for it. But if it's something that conflicts with His Word, then get away from it as quick as you can. If we, as the spouse of God, as we being the bride of Christ, are disloyal to Him, it is as if we are an, what? Enemy. Adultery in a marriage is very harmful. Have you ever seen anything where it is a, it's always a good thing? The other partner really likes that. Oh, fantastic. No, uh, it's, it usually destroys marriage. It's a bad thing. God can work all things together for good, though. We know that. In His great grace, He can turn that and turn it into good. But this is how serious it is. With our covenant with God, we are to take seriously our desires of the heart. Because if the desires are not of God, we are disloyal. Okay, now we get into the part where Moses is going to start his interrogation against Aaron. You guys know what interrogation is, don't you? 24, that great show, 24. <laughs> Jack, was he a great interrogator? Well, I mean, he comes in there. He's going to get the answer, no matter what. He might have to do a little beating on him, but he's going to get that answer, no matter what, right? Well, Moses interrogates Aaron. He's not going to beat on him, but I'm telling you what, I've got a feeling Aaron is shaking in his sandals. All right, verse 21. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? 
say Aaron said do not let the anger of my Lord become hot you know the people that they're, they're, they're set on evil for, for they said to me make us gods that shall go before us as for this Moses that man who brought us out of the land of Egypt we don't know what's become of him and I said to them whoever has any gold let them break it off so they gave it to me and I cast it in the fire and this cat came out yeah that's where everybody knows this part right this is this is rather funny it would be funny if it weren't so serious Moses asked Aaron how could this ever happen to you here you are you know, he's going to be the high priest <laughs> Aaron is going to be the high priest how could you ever let this happen what do people do to you for this to be done like this I know it wasn't your idea Aaron I'm putting words in the mouth here I don't want to read into scripture but can you imagine this is kind of like what Moses is getting at they must have forced you Aaron somehow you, you didn't volunteer to do this did you Aaron was this your idea As some of the thoughts that might be going through here uh, Aaron you know better what in the world are you doing I think there had to have been a lot of sarcasm here when Moses is saying this you are part of this you this language was used as a legal term look at this at this verse in 21 what this people do to you that you brought so great a sin upon them the great sin this is a great sin the great sin what's Moses saying here well in the Mideast this language was used frequently. It was used in the courts as a legal term. It was also a, a legal term or a marriage contract term. The great sin. What would be the great sin in a marriage contract? Adultery. It'd be referring to adultery in marriage. In Genesis chapter 20 verse 9 Abraham has his wife Sarah with him and he's afraid that if he is seen with his wife they'll take his wife from him and so he, he acts like she is really his sister and Abimelech came from another nation uh, takes her and uh, Abimelech has a dream and he realizes that the woman that he took there, Sarah, wasn't what he should have done. And now he's thinking, oh man, this Abraham set me up. Because this God is going to punish me. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, verse 8, called all of his servants, told all these things in their hearing, and the men were very much afraid. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin you have done deeds to me that ought not to be done then Abimelech said to Abraham what did you have in view that you have done this thing and Abraham said because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place and they'll kill me on account of my wife but indeed she is truly my sister she's the daughter of my father but not the daughter of my mother and she became my wife so she is a sister in some way but she's also his wife he didn't tell the full truth. 
And he says, Abimelech, what does he say? He's not even from Abraham's tribe. He says, a great sin. A great sin. Chapter 39, verse 9 of Genesis. Here you have Joseph. And Joseph is a slave. He's in his master's house. And you know the story about uh, the lady that Tensum, Potiphar's wife. Uh, verse 6, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I nor has he kept back anything from me but you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Or this great sin, this kind of sin that is adultery. Another man's wife. Joseph says that. Bimelech had said that. Throughout Scripture you see the great sin and in these biblical usages it's dealing with adultery. But when you see great sin elsewhere, it's dealing with spiritual adultery. That is what we have in our story today. In the Old Testament, this great sin refers to idolatry. Moses is saying to Aaron, How could you lead them into idolatry? Aaron has an answer. What do you do when somebody catches you in sin? Well, the first thing you do is start blaming it on somebody else. What did Adam and Eve do? What did Adam do when God spoke to him? That woman you gave to me. Blamed it on somebody else. Well, Aaron, like I said, he's shaking. Moses is angry. Would you like to be in Aaron's shoes right now? Samuels, I'm sorry. Okay. The section here I think is rather humorous in, in a lot of ways it's, it's laced with it in this answer but it's still very serious but it's very funny how Aaron responds and he's trying to appease the anger of Moses and you remember when God was first angry about this sin and he told Moses Moses was appeasing God right he was trying to, to mediate for the people Alright, well, Moses appeased the anger and now we see his brother trying to appease the anger of Moses. And we start seeing some self-justification here. Um, if we don't see the sin as what it is, then we try to make it less than what it is. So Aaron responds in a way that's kind of relaying to Moses how the people are prone to evil. Those are some evil people, Moses. I mean, they are really... You don't know. <laughs> you don't know how bad they are. Why were you caught up in that? If that really be the case, why did you let yourself get caught up in it? Aaron says, Do not let the anger of my Lord, is his brother, become hot. Uh, you know the people. that They're, they're set on evil. They're set on evil. They're just, they're just wicked. He gives a statement that's true because... All people are depraved, aren't they? The depravity of man. We all are that way. 
We have to see it that way. We break His commandments. All right, well, uh, he denies his responsibility. He was the one put in charge down there. He is the one that's going to take the heat immediately. Uh, the hot anger of Moses. God had put him in that position, didn't he? That's a great position that he's in. And that was to keep them from doing those things. Even if it meant they would, they would kill him. What would happen if they would kill him? Well, at least he was obeying God. But what if you give in? Well, he didn't obey God. I think he's rather wimpy. I think he gave in. So Aaron starts mitigating here, or we see here, that saying that, the, okay, this really wasn't designed to be an idol. You know, it's really about the one true God. You know, that's the God that we made when we were... Worshiping God will bring the offerings here, you know, and this is to Jehovah. This is Yahweh, you know, the, the one true covenant God. We, we wanted this object to help us see that He's with us. Kind of be the presence amongst us. That's, that's, that's why Moses, that's what was done. The people thought it was time to worship God, and they were tired of waiting on you, Moses. Doesn't exactly say that, but let's look at that. Look at verse 23. For they said to me, Make us gods that shall go before us, as for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt. We don't know what's become of him. So the next one is, uh, we find in verse 24, we either find a lie here, or some kind of uh, idiomatic expression. Uh, I, I said to them, Okay, whoever has any gold, uh, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and poof, out came this calf. I kid you not, Moses, that's what happened. Now, Moses knows better. And there's no magic happening here. They, they built this, and Moses, you know, he's got to take this in a way of going, this is ridiculous. Aaron's saying, hey, don't look at me. Look, I don't know how it got here. <laughs> he knew exactly how it got there. I, I don't know what happened. They all of a sudden it just came up. I, I had to go. I got it and put it in there. Hey, what happens after that? You know, hey, I'm 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 out of this. Aaron had the audacity to say that all he had to all he had done was put the gold in the fire. Poof! Out comes the cat. Now this. I don't think is really a lie. I think there has to do with some cultural aspects here because he is embarrassed. He messed up big time. He's been caught. He knows it. So he said what he said. I threw it in there. Out comes the idol. He knows it's ridiculous. Even the ridiculous seems justified though sometimes. He wanted to keep from being punished kind of punishment's going to happen to me. What a lame answer. I mean, it's almost Moses probably almost had to have a smirk. Oh my, I can't believe he's coming up with this. But maybe he's taking it so seriously that uh, he can't handle this. This is, this is a, quite a picture. I think Aaron's a real weasel here. And he exposes the utter madness of the whole act that happened. Moses doesn't even give a response. Did you notice that? 
Moses doesn't even say anything to that stupid answer that he came up with. Moses is not going to give him any dignity with, with an answer back to that. People said ridiculous, crazy things that you knew better and they knew better. And, you know, why even bother to say anything to that? That's ridiculous. But isn't it ridiculous when we try to justify our sins and we know that it's sin? We have so many lame, ironic excuses to what, for our sin in our own lives that how often do we do the same thing that Aaron does here? We need to own up to it, face what, what it is, and be corrected by God. Well, Moses now takes action here, and he's going to call out to the people. It says verse 25, we first see... Uh, as Moses later writes us down, but coming from God's viewpoint. Now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies. Then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side, go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp, and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, that he may bestow, bestow on you a blessing this day, for every man has opposed his son and his brother. Moses said, Whoever's on the Lord's side, come here. We have seen some nonsense waffling on Aaron's part. Now we get the rest of the story. Do we get the real story? We get the perspective of God. Isn't that interesting? Aaron, for like 22, 23, 24, three verses, gives his response to it, and then God says, no, no, here's the way it is. Now, when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, they were out of control. For Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies. Aaron didn't do his job. So this is God's perspective now. He clarifies this. It shows how it really was. Don't believe a thing that Aaron said. The people were out of control because of Aaron. Moses says, okay. What side are you going to be on? That's almost like later on we hear, choose you this day whom you're going to serve. Have you heard that one before? Oh, that's what's happening. You know what Moses is calling for? Loyalty. He's saying, who's, who's loyal here? You know what? There is still faithfulness in the camp. God has his people. There's faithful in the midst of all this chaos that's going on, all this sin. The Levites responded. They demonstrate that God's house is still in order. No matter how bad it looks. It looks terrible, doesn't it? But God's house is still in order. There are still faithful people. The rebellion, it's, it's sinful, it's, it's grievous, it makes you sad. But it's not the final word. You look on what's happening in our country today, our nation, our world. Boy, it's despicable. It's terrible. It's evil. You can think of all that wicked sin that's going on, and yet God's house is still in order. His people, His true people, are still faithful. They're here. 
The guilty parties are going to be put to death by the Levites. Because they have to maintain order in the community. Somehow the ringleaders, I don't know what's going on, who are these 3,000? Why didn't, uh, weren't there more? Well, evidently there were people who led the people to do what they did. Or these ringleaders were uh, terribly involved in this. And maybe it was made known somehow to the Levites who they were, and they went to them and then killed them. Maybe these were just out and out, openly unrepentant people, and they were rebelling against what Moses was saying. They could be identified easily. We don't know how this happened. Maybe God just revealed it somehow. Whatever it was, they strap on their swords and they go out and kill 3,000 people. Now, I'm trying to think of 3,000. I grew up in a town called Eldon and has, it used to have 3,000 people. I don't know what it is now. California might have close to 3,000 people. Pretty close? Can you imagine a whole town of California being obliterated just like that? By people coming in and taking swords and whacking them out? <laughs> this is what happens. Some of these people are friends, they're neighbors, and some are even family, brothers. Some are having to kill their brothers of what had gone on. The Levites are just demonstrating covenant loyalty to God. This seems extreme to kill them. What kind of God is that? When you go into the promised land, he says, go in and wipe all the nations out. Take them out. Why would God do that? Because if they go in and they intermingle, what they're going to do is pick up their kind of lifestyles. And they will not be separate from the sinful world. That's what it demonstrates. God demanded loyalty. Interesting about Aaron. Is Aaron killed? No. He's going to be the high priest. Well, what happened here? Well, mercy of God. That's all I can say. Maybe he was spared because of his relations to Moses. You think, well, him being the leader of all this, he's the captain, man, you know, he's in charge. But God had already chosen him to be the high priest, and he puts mercy on him. Puts mercy on whom he wants to. And takes off the restraints and lets the people do what they want in, in other cases. And uh, he judges them. Mercy was given. That's all I can say. God visits with his judgment. And he shows how important it is to worship him. As idolatry is the ultimate act of betrayal. All across the world you have Eastern religions. Of course, today we're all familiar with the Muslim religion. And they have the right to practice that here. But in God's eyes, that is, is a despicable thing because they're not worshiping the right God. They say there's only one God. But Allah is a false God. There is no Allah. There is no true reality behind Him. It's something they have made. It's, it is an idol. But there is a true God. If they don't worship Him, they are doomed. The death penalty is not extreme. When we look at, at this right here, if the ringleaders had been allowed to continue the influence that they had, what would have happened to the nation of Israel? Had God allowed them to keep being in with those people? It would be just like having the pagan nations around them. 
The cat had to be utterly removed, didn't it? Totally taken out. So the ones who led the worshiping of it had to be utterly removed too. How can we take this into our own lives? That's the way sin is in, in us. We are to mortify sin. We are to starve it. We are to choke it. We're to do whatever it takes to get rid of that sin. John Owen, a Puritan, wrote just a fantastic works on what sin does and how we are to mortify it, to kill it, to starve it, choke it, whatever it is, to, to kill it, to cut it off. Get rid of the sin that's in our hearts. We are to be ruthless when it comes to our own personal sin. You go in there with a sword and just cut it off. Stop it. Remove it. It's like a cancerous cell. And if you don't stop that cancerous cell, if, you, if, a, if a surgeon doesn't come in there with a scalpel and take that thing out, what's going to happen? It's going to grow. Leave no room for the enemy of sin in your own lives to retain a foothold. Do not let sin get a foothold in your own. It starts with a toehold, gets a foothold, then gets a hold of you. That's how God takes seriously this uh, just, just sin. Well, we're right at the end here. This is the heart of the mediator here. Here is Moses stepping in now. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, You have committed a what? Great sin. The great sin. You have committed it. So now I will go up to the Lord. I'm going to go to Yahweh. I'm going to go to God. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin. That's our words for the day, right? He's confessing for the people. Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. The atonement for a great sin. The heart of the mediator is coming. He's seen the sin. He has felt it. He has carried out what uh, God has told him. And now he entreats the Lord. He goes back to him. He's already gone to the Lord, but he's seen it. He comes up there and he speaks to the Lord for the whole nation. He confesses their sins, and then, namely, the great sin is brought out. Their disloyalty, their idolatry. He knows the weight, the gravity of the sin. He doesn't take it lightly in any way. And he doesn't come up and say, Oh, Israel's pretty good though. You know, they messed up here. I know Aaron did this. But, you know, they've only done really well, you know, out here in the desert. And, you know, they've been really good for you, God. And, and they're going to bring glory to you. So he doesn't do that. <laughs> he just goes to God and pleads for mercy. Because there's nothing good about them. Only God himself. Like us. There's nothing good in us, Romans 3 says, outside of Christ. If Christ is in us, that's what's good. So he's saying maybe there's some chance of forgiveness of sins. Maybe some way God will forgive. He gives us plea. Moses knows that God had said that he'd make a people out of Moses. He says, okay. That group of people messed up. I'll start it all over again here, Moses. You go get your wife and we'll start up a new nation. 
He'd already said that earlier. He's saying, Lord, forgive them. Don't destroy them. He did this, and we looked at it last week. But he says, but if you do, blot me out of your book. Take me out. Boy, does he identify with his people? How bad are they? Well, we've seen what they've done. But he's identifying with his people. This is what Christ does. He had no sin whatsoever. But he identified with us. He went on the cross, paid for our sin, mediated for us, put righteousness on us, took our sin and put it on him. What a mediator. Do you see the picture of Christ and what Moses is doing? Do you see mercy? Do you see grace? Do you see forgiveness? Do you see love here? He took on our guilt and sin, was actually punished and killed, Christ was, so we could have His righteousness. That's the glory of the new covenant. Remember the old covenant? We have the new covenant. And that's Christ who is the one that mediates that to us. One last thing. The Lord still is a just God. Is He holy? Yes. Is He righteous? Yes. Is He just? Yes. Is He merciful? Yeah. He's demonstrating all these attributes in this whole story. Do you see the love of God? Do you see the mercy of God? Do you see the grace of God in all this? He could have wiped them all. He could have wiped out Moses, Aaron, all of them if he wanted to. But he doesn't do that. But he still has to bring on punishment. And he does. Because he is a just God. He doesn't wink at sin. There are consequences to sin. If you're a Christian, God has already forgiven your sin. You're forgiven forever. As far as the east is from the west. I want you to know that. God's great grace. But number two, there are consequences that we still have to work through as we are still in these bodies. Verse 33, and we'll finish this out. The Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now therefore, go lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment, a 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 punish